This week on Delicious History, on vacation, we're in beautiful Bogota, Colombia. Have you ever wondered why bananas are always so cheap? Find out the high cost of low prices on this episode of Delicious History. Delicious History is a podcast designed to show us not just how history has affected food, but how food has affected history. For more information, you can visit delicioushistorypodcast.com or visit us on our social media at Delicious History Podcast on both Instagram and Facebook. This episode of Delicious History is brought to you by Awards Co. If you're looking for any type of award whatsoever, from trophies to plaques to even medals, awardsco.com is your place to go. They offer some of the lowest prices for the products they offer, and yet they deliver excellent service. For more information, visit them at awardsco.com and use code DM10 for 10% off your next purchase. As we're moving along on our trip, we're in the last port of call in South America. Uh, My wife and I are spending a very short period of time here in Bogota until we make our way across the pond to Madrid. This is actually a city I used to go over uh, for layovers quite a bit, Uh, especially when I used to do a lot of traveling in my single days. In fact, one of my buddies and I, uh, when we travel a lot, we used to uh, specifically have layovers here in Bogota in El Dorado Airport. And we do that because a lot of times we'd end up getting at least seven, eight hour layovers. So we would pick flights that would give us like like 15 hour layovers so we can go out and visit the city while we're waiting for our next flight. One of my favorite experiences here in Bogota was actually about seven years ago. Uh, We were trying to get to the, the center of the city from El Dorado Airport. And like a lot of modern airports, El Dorado is quite a distance from the actual city of Bogota itself. So the problem was, I made this really stupid mistake. I went into a taxi in Latin America without negotiating a price. So my buddy and I were on our way to the, to the center of the city, and I get into the taxi, and I just took cash. I don't remember if it was out of the ATM or if I had it changed. And we get in there, and I realized. I don't know how much this is going to cost. So something you have to understand is that in a lot of parts of Latin America, even if the taxis have a taxi meter, they won't necessarily use it. So you're supposed to negotiate the price before you get into the, uh, before you actually get into the taxi itself. Anyway, so it dawned on me as we're going down the highway, I have no idea how much this is going to cost. So I asked the guy and he said, it's going to cost 20,000 pesos. So the other stupid thing I did, besides not negotiating with the guy in the first place, was not understanding how much pesos are worth. So I have no idea how much 20,000 pesos are, and I just assumed it was too much because I didn't negotiate. And so I said, are you kidding me? 20,000 pesos? So I have no idea how much 
20,000 pesos are because I didn't uh, calculate anything at the time. I didn't have a phone that would work uh, that I could even look it up. But I just assumed because I didn't negotiate that 20,000 must be an outrageous price. So I told him, you know what? I'm not going to pay a peso more than 12,000. And he goes, no, the price is 20,000. And as we're going through a tunnel, I said, you know what? Fine. Then I'm out of here. And I opened the door or, you know, slightly open the door, and the guy starts flipping out. He goes, okay, 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 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. Is 12,000 pesos a good price or a bad price for the taxi? To this day, I have no idea. Um, of course, it was not my proudest moment for a lot of reasons, but definitely one of the most memorable here in Bogota. Oh, and, and I got the pet llama. You know, modern-day Colombia is a lot different than people think it is. When a lot of Westerners think of Colombia, they might think of the Pablo Escobar days. And like a lot of Mexican betrayals in film, they always tend to have a yellow tint to it when they're, when they're on screen, when you're inside of uh, Colombia. So by the way, I have a theory as to why Mexico and Colombia always have yellow filters when they're in the media. And it's one word, that word, sunglasses. If you wear brown sunglasses, everything's going to have a yellowish tint to it. So due to my personal coloring, my, my hair and my face, I tend to use brown sunglasses when I go out because it tends to look better on me. And I think that in the past, a lot of people were going on vacation in Mexico and other parts of Latin America, obviously wearing sunglasses because it's sunny. So when they think back on their time in Latin America, they might think of things with like a yellowish filter. So, I mean, that's just a theory, though it's uh, a correct theory. Anyway, Colombia is a gorgeous country and is a lot more advanced than people give it credit for. And this is especially true here in the capital, Bogota. The big issue with Colombia over the years is that it's been held back by terrorist activity as well as the drug trade. But if you weren't involved in either of those activities, and based on my listener statistics, uh, most of you are not in the drug trade or terrorist business, then you probably know something else about Colombia. They have coffee and bananas. So we're going to focus on the latter, the bananas here in this episode. I want you to think for a moment how much money you pay for bananas. Now, according to Statista.com, the average price for bananas in the U.S. for 2022 was 63 cents a pound. And even though that number seems kind of high to me, I don't think I'm paying 63 cents a pound for bananas. It's still relatively cheap food. I mean, I think the last time I bought bananas was uh, closer to 50 cents a pound. But anyway, let's compare that to potatoes, a famously cheap food item. According to that same site, the average price for potatoes during that time was $1.10 per pound. Okay, so let's stop and think about that for a second. A tropical fruit that comes from the opposite end of the world and has to travel on boat and has lots of logistical issues to consider costs almost less than half the price of potatoes. I mean, doesn't that seem a bit odd to you? Now, the older you are, I want you to think about how much you paid for bananas throughout your life. I mean, all things considered, bananas have always been remarkably cheap. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, that's by design. American companies in particular have famously gone into the banana-producing companies and caused havoc to keep banana prices low. This is a topic we're going to discuss in later episodes, I'm sure, but 
For the sake of this episode, let's just focus on Colombian bananas. In order to talk about bananas in the past, let's talk about bananas in the current world for a moment. And I know this may sound a little strange, but I got the inside scoop in the banana world. Uh, Actually, my wife, uh, when we first got married, she was a banana exporter in Ecuador. I mean, she wasn't physically exporting the bananas. She was a logistics coordinator, but you know what I mean. Whenever you go to countries that produce a lot of bananas, you see these giant forests of banana plants. Notice I didn't say banana trees, by the way. Even though they're the size of a small tree, they're still technically banana plants because they don't have any woody tissue inside of them. These bananas require two things, both currently and in the past. Chemicals and back-breaking labor. The reason is because bananas are very prone to disease as well as insect damage. And because of these factors, banana growing is one of the most chemically laden types of agriculture you can imagine. And the people who I see work in these fields, they a lot of times would have stories about strange cancers and children born with birth defects and other things like that. Now, I, I can't speak to exact statistics on that, but I can only say based on the experience of people that my wife worked with. And it was a pretty nasty business if you were in the fields themselves. And because bananas are so perishable, harvests need to be taken care of very quickly and efficiently. This means that these giant arms of bananas need to be taken down, packaged, and shipped as soon as possible to be sent to the opposite end of the world. If things are that tough for banana production now, imagine what they were like 100 years ago. So here's another fun fact about bananas. People generally don't eat a lot of bananas where they're grown. Uh, Plantains are very common for sure, but actual bananas as we know them are much more widely consumed in Europe and the U.S. In fact, bananas are one of the most popular fruits in the U.S., with Americans eating about 24 pounds per capita per year. And need I remind you, this is not a country known for its fruit intake. And this is not a new thing. People have been eating bananas in the U.S. like crazy for a long time. And because so many Americans were consuming bananas, it would make sense that American companies would pop up to make sure that the production and importation of bananas would be as cheap and as of high quality as possible. That's where companies like the United Fruit Company came into play. The United Fruit Company had more than its fair share of controversies during the late 19th and 20th centuries. They were known for creating systems that had virtually no competition and where workers had little to no rights whatsoever. Remember, this was the era of company towns and company stores. These were ideas that were generally made famous by coal mining, but they existed with other industries as well. So basically, a particular company would create an area that was to house and care for the needs of all their workers. The idea was that if their workers didn't need to worry about housing, food, and the other necessities of life, they would be more productive. So the company would ever so graciously care for all the needs of their workers so that they can work harder and better. Kind of like working at Google 10 years ago. Of course, what ended up happening in the long term was that companies were making their workers indebted to them because they would often only pay in credit to the company's stores. By design, they would even pay their employees less in company store credit than they needed to actually survive. But again, ever so graciously, they provided them with credit. Over time, you would end up owing the company so much money in the company store that you would be in, like an indentured servant and could never get yourself out of that hole. 
By the 1920s, similar things were happening in Colombia at the time with banana growers under the United Fruit Company, or at least companies that worked under the United Fruit Company. Obviously, workers were not happy with what was going on. So to understand where these workers were coming from, let's go over a list of demands that they eventually ended up giving to the United Fruit Company. The first on this list of demands was that they didn't want the United Fruit Company to hire workers through subcontractors. This meant that if they were to go to the United Fruit Company asking for help of some sort for any kind of changes, the United Fruit Company could just throw up their hands and say, well, listen, I mean, any of these problems you have are with your employer. In sense, we're not your employer. There's nothing we can do. Honestly, this is probably one of the smartest things that the workers did, since anything else they could have asked for would have gone out the window if this particular issue was not addressed. Plus, the Colombian government was starting to put general protections in place for actual employees of companies during this time, so it would make sense that they would want to be employees and not just subcontractors of subcontractors. The next thing was that they wanted mandatory collective insurance as well as compensation for work accidents. These banana workers were treated like nothing more than animals in a lot of ways. They were worked until they could no longer work anymore, and therefore they had no more value. They were just thrown to the curb like no one even knew who they were. Another issue was rooming. These men were either forced to sleep out in the banana fields or were given housing that was just plain disgusting. So they asked for hygienic dormitories and for a six-day work week so that they would have at least one day of rest per week. The next few items were related to pay and wages. First, they wanted to have an increase in daily pay for any of the workers that earned less than 100 pesos a month. Along with that, they wanted to be paid weekly, as many of these men were living hand-to-mouth, and so they couldn't wait a month or six months to receive their pay. They also wanted an end to the company stores that we'd mentioned, as well as being paid in coupons for these stores instead of actual cash. The last thing on their list was that they wanted an improvement of hospital services. So if we look through this list of about what, eight or nine items, very reasonable, things that we probably uh, take for granted uh, in our modern society, but these were the basic things that these banana workers were looking for. With this list of demands in hand, the banana workers went on strike starting November 12th of 1928 in and around the city of Magdalena. There was so much support for this that it ended up becoming the largest labor movement ever witnessed in the country up to that point. And not only were banana workers involved, but they were members of the Liberal Party as well as Socialist and Communist parties. This was gaining so much traction that other groups were now recognizing this and wanted to take advantage of the platform it offered. Unfortunately, the United Fruit Company didn't take too kindly to breaks in production. After all, they had a whole country of Americans to feed bananas to. As the strike continued, not only were the demands of the banana growers not met at all, but an army regiment was sent from Bogota to deal with the strikers. General Cortes Vargas sent in 300 soldiers from outside of the area. The idea was that he figured since many of the local soldiers may be related to these strikers, they wouldn't be able to take action if they were ordered to. He figured it was better to send in faceless soldiers from other parts of the country so that they wouldn't show any sort of compassion. And compassion certainly was not the order of the day. As soon as these soldiers arrived to Magdalena, they set up machine guns on the tops of roofs, making sure they had easy access to the main square and any of the main streets. 
On that next Sunday morning of December 5th, the streets of Magdalena were filled with both protesters as well as townspeople bringing their children to Sunday Mass. The one thing that everyone was there for was an anticipated speech by the governor. That speech never came, but there was a five-minute warning to get out of the streets. After the five-minute warning, gunfire started ringing from all directions. Smoke and screams filled the streets of Magdalena, but the violence didn't end there. Military personnel and strikers began fighting with each other in and around Magdalena. This violence went on for a few days, and by the time the shooting ended, there was nothing but chaos and dead bodies everywhere. Exactly how many people died depends on who you asked. General Cortez Vargas, the officer responsible for this action, said that 47 people had died. Researchers such as Herrera Soto have stated that the numbers could have gone above 2,000. The main problem with getting an exact number was that the soldiers were very quick to move the bodies out of the way and dispose of them. A congressman living at that time named Jorge Alesiar Gaitan said that the bodies of the strikers were thrown into the oceans, so really there was no way to get an official count. Others said there were mass graves that these people were thrown in. But regardless of where these bodies ended up going, the actual count is probably something we'll never know for sure. Things got pretty bad, as you can imagine, and protesters were so scared of being hunted down after the initial attacks that they went to extreme lengths to protect themselves. One of the survivors, Luis Vicente Gámez, he hid under a bridge for three days until he was sure the coast was clear. One of the hallmarks of this massacre was the lack of solid information. Most of the information we have during this time came from local news sources who were all heavily biased. The more liberal papers who sided with the strikers made the event sound as bad as possible, possibly even exaggerating certain details. More conservative newspapers, such as El Tiempo, were openly hostile against these strikers and downplayed as many of the details as possible. One thing that's quite interesting, however, is who ordered the attack in the first place? This is where things start to get a little interesting. So put on your tinfoil hats because it's conspiracy time. Most historians who study this event say that the United Fruit Company had at least some responsibility in the military being sent in to stop the strike. Some even say that they gave the Colombian military their marching orders, though that can be debated. But it does seem reasonable that a foreign company that had such a large amount of investment in the country would definitely hold some sway for any politicians that didn't want to be responsible for such a large employer closing shop. But besides the United Fruit Company, there was also someone else that might have been involved. The U.S. government. It's no secret that a lot of Latin American countries have not been all that appreciative of American involvement in their countries over the years. Some politicians have even based their entire political platform on being anti-imperialist American, such as countries like Venezuela. The problem with those arguments is that a lot of U.S. involvement in Latin American affairs have very little solid information to back them up. That being said, it's very possible that information is lacking on purpose. I mean, but regardless, there are a few smoking guns when it comes to U.S. involvement in Latin American affairs. Now, I love a good conspiracy theory. And the first thing I do before I entertain the thought of a conspiracy is to see if anyone benefits. And if so, who? Sometimes you see conspiracy theories where nobody benefits at all. So 
that would be the point where we could say that's just crazy because who would go through all that trouble for nothing? In this case, there are definitely people who would have benefited within the U.S. Besides the United Fruit Company themselves, the people of the United States would benefit. Who wants to spend $10 for a banana? And politicians don't want food prices to rise on their watch because we would obviously blame them. Because of that, there's the idea that the United States government, or at least some within the United States government, may have played a larger role in this massacre than they would want to admit. That's where we get the telegrams that went between Frank Kellogg, the U.S. Secretary of State at the time, and the U.S. Embassy in Bogota, as well as the Santa Marta Consulate. The only issue is that, as far as my research was concerned, I was only able to see one-sided parts of these telegrams, meaning that these were the telegrams that were sent from the consulate, from the embassy to Kellogg, and not the other way around. So I wasn't able to see how Kellogg was actually answering these telegrams. Some of the more troubling telegrams during this time point to a possible premeditated involvement on the part of the U.S. For example, the Santa Marta consulate wrote Kellogg asking for warships to be provided and to be under the control of the consulate itself. If you look at these telegrams, you can either read them as these government officials wanting to support the Colombian military or simply wanting protection for themselves because the Colombian military probably would not be able to protect them if they needed to. However, the problem is that the later telegrams show that the U.S. government clearly was on the side of the Colombian military. A telegram from the U.S. Embassy in Bogota on December 29th wrote, quote, I have the honor to report that the legal advisor of the United Fruit Company here in Bogota stated yesterday that the total number of strikers killed by the Colombian military authorities during the recent disturbance reached between five and six hundred, while the number of soldiers killed was one, unquote. Another dispatch from the same embassy a month later was once again honored to report that the number exceeded 1,000. Obviously, this is far from a smoking gun, but some people do use this as evidence towards the U.S. involvement, or at least the U.S. interest in this massacre. This might seem like a one-off event, but much like a lot of the Union-related violence that happened in the U.S. during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the Banana Massacre became a rallying point for all kinds of causes. Some of these causes were generally considered positive, such as the increase in workers' rights throughout the country of Colombia. Other effects were not as positive. For example, FARC, which has been known for causing massive amounts of instability and terrorism in certain parts of the country of Colombia from 1964 to 2016, said they would have never existed had it not been for the Banana Massacre. Other terrorist groups within Colombia have shared similar thoughts. This also ended up becoming part of the zeitgeist of Colombia at the time. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, one of Colombia's most popular writers of all time, used this as the inspiration for his book, 100 Years of Solitude. Which, by the way, that's... 100 Years of Solitude has been on my list for probably the last 10 years. Uh, I just haven't been able to get to it yet, but hopefully soon. Well, we obviously know what happened to a lot of the strikers. Whatever ended up happening to the United Fruit Company? Well, you know how, like, innocent people like to, you know, just randomly change their names from time to time? Well, anyway, the United Fruit Company changed their name to Chiquita in 1991, and they still have that name today. The main reason for changing their name was because they didn't want to be associated with the sins of the past, so to speak. 
This was not the only questionable thing they did in Latin America. Trust me. And don't worry, we're not going to let them off the hook. You'll be hearing a lot more about the United Fruit Company on this show. Well, that's it from Colombia and actually from South America as a whole. Next stop, Madrid, Spain. Until next time, remember that we all write our own history. So make yours delicious. <laughs>